Real meeting of the minds tonight. Uh, some guy, a uh, guy I've really, I, I some guy I've really admired for uh, from afar for a while, and um, I and I noticed on his podcast that he mentioned that if you uh, bother him enough on the internet, uh, he'll 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 uh, have you on his show. So I figured maybe that could work the other way around. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce our guest tonight, Maxwell Cody, Meme King. Um, <laughs> and um, uh, internet ideologue, I think, would be a fair way to uh, describe you. How, how you doing, pal? I'm doing good. Thanks for having me. Um, so uh, one of the things that we've chatted about, uh, well, let me just, so um, I don't know, uh, one of the things that I really identified when I first, you know, we're not, I, I'm not going to, we're not going to like, we're not going to play um, uh, me- metal subgenre with politics. So we're not going to get into like specifics um, about uh, like how we differ, I guess, as politically. But but uh, one of the things I noticed that you said, I don't know if it was on your show or online or something. You said you were politically activated around the Occupy thing. That was well, yeah, that was definitely when I was young. Yeah. yeah, that's when I was younger. I was definitely like very vehemently left wing in my teen years slash uh, early 20s um, before I became kind of disillusioned with uh, leftist politics. But you, you, you said you said Internet ideologue. I consider myself more of an ideologue or ideology uh, connoisseur. Oh, OK. Yeah. yeah nice. <laughs> a bit of a sommelier, if you will. Yes. Yes. Yeah. An, an ideology sommelier. <laughs> But uh, yeah, no, it's funny because um, I don't know if I've said this on the show either, but I kind of was more I was like when I was a kid, kid, I was like you. I was like, oh, yeah, fuck, fuck the well, I guess I am still kind of fuck the man. But but uh, right. I was I was a very much very much like uh, like, you know, fuck capitalism, man. And then and then, you know, it's funny. I um, when Occupy did happen, it is kind of what I politically activated. But um, it turned me into like a Ron Paulsberg. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. I well, what's well? I had a I had a libertarian uh, phase myself because I was so angry actually in 2006 about the Democratic Party not doing enough to stop George Bush and stop the war in Iraq and stop the Patriot Act um, that I actually s- supported Ron Paul. Right. Um, not because I was like the most vehement libertarian, but just because I thought if the left won't do it, um, these people on the right might do it. Right. Um, so yeah, that's, that's just so interesting that like you were, we're like vaguely the same age. I don't know your exact age or anything, but like, yeah, we seem to be in the same age bracket. And it's so funny that like, really, it's so funny, especially now, like when you see kids get, uh, people get older and like get into politics now, cause it's everywhere. I mean, you can't escape it obviously, um, at this point, but it's like, it's like, it's there, there is something to that last, that last wave of, uh, of, you know, uh, 
that that 2008 thing that happened you know what i mean where like so mm-hmm. many people got fucking woke up around then and uh i think people got broke pilled i think the the financial collapse <laughs> broke right, pilled yeah, a lot of true. people um because i i grew up pretty poor uh but then by you know by the 2000s actually uh my my family was starting to be like properly middle class mm-hmm. and we got to be that for a couple years and then it all went away so i i, I sometimes refer to myself as a millennial poster boy because that a, a massive amount of disappointment at that young age. Yeah. Um, I think, I think that, uh, like I said, I think that, 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 that was my broke pill. And I think a lot of other people have their Same. own versions of getting in, broke in pill. a way. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, when I graduated high school, it was the, it was the year of the financial crisis. So I was like, fuck. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, no, then I, you know, I saw, I saw Peter Schiff online and I was like, I have it all figured out. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> Uh, anyway, but anyway, that's just a quick little introduction. So it's really nice to have you tonight. And, uh, we wanted to talk about, um, so we we are a history podcast as, as the name implies, uh, despite Mm -hmm. the uh, misleading homos, uh, moniker, but, um, you're right. You're right. There is a homo on the show. Thank you. <laughs> I believe. I think. I think it was D. H. Lawrence who who said that the more you like history, the more uh, big homo you are. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I believe that's. I believe that's the quote, right? It, it might have been him, but it might have been Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> that was definitely Lincoln who said that. <laughs> Um, but anyway, so uh, one of the things that uh, that we wanted to talk about is we have like endless takes about World War One, but you had you uh, sort of pitched. We kind of came together on a pitch of an idea that so we could talk about some of our theories around, you know, World War One, its implications and, you know, what 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 would have happened if it didn't. So, yeah, so people always say, um, I'm sure whenever you hear alternate history, it's always, you know, some version of what if the Nazis won (laughs) and or if I had a time machine, I would kill baby Hitler. Right. And I've always thought, why would you waste your time on Hitler and fuck over everyone who died in World War One? Why not go back and save Franz Ferdinand and see what would happen? So that's that's kind of like my favorite um, uh, alternate history Another theory. Thing that's about the one that the, I probably spent the most time thinking about. The Hitler well, thing is like it's very much like a fetishy thing for both left wing kind of angled people and right because you know there's that whole like. Um, you know, like, first of all, you got, of course, you get LARPy Nazi guys who are just like, yeah, if Hitler won, <laughs> like, then on one hand. Yeah. And then on the other hand, you also have uh, people who, um, you know, that kind of, I remember, like, specifically after you read about this, there's like, after World War II, there was a bunch of, like, um, fetish porn, like, erotica written about, like, about, um, like, cruel Nazi S&M stuff. And like its primary, its primary audience was Jews. <laughs> uh, I, I I definitely know a lot about like fetish magazine. Well, I, just, I know a whole bunch about fetish magazines, but <laughs> I know that I know that uh, fetish too, magazines friend. in like the fifties and sixties yeah. often would have like Nazi or even like right. Japanese Axis prisoner themes. Mm-hmm. I didn't know. I've never heard anything about it being particularly. Uh, Maybe we go to different forums, people. but uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, no. So I have heard that though, and I think there. Is, I read something on Wikipedia, which is uh, which is you know you know normally approved. So gospel, it's, yeah, yeah. It's obviously been fact checked and debunked. So um, but it, it is like uh, we've been sort of wondering aloud about the, this. I think I brought it up a couple of weeks ago. Of 
that what well, as you were saying, everyone kind of fetishizes World War Two, right? And, and says, oh, and one of the standard takes is, if only the United States hadn't got involved in World War Two, how much better could things have been? Certainly, in sort of uh, right wing libertarian circles, a lot of people right. say that. Well, we hadn't gotten involved in World War Two, hadn't gotten involved in World War One. In World War Two, but like I, I was thinking, well. The real problem was Great Britain getting involved in World War One. Yeah, 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 yeah. That 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 really had no get no benefit to Great Britain really of getting involved. Well, so the and, the sorry the, and the it goes back to the Boer War before that, which is another one of our pet topics. I think I heard you guys talking about a little bit. Yeah, the, yeah. The, uh, I'm glad you got a primer time. because the audience is extremely <laughs> tired of hearing about Cesar fucking Rhodes. <laughs> All right. Well, well, we'll skip the Rhodes for a second. The take I always hear with regards to World War One, though, is usually the the isolationist libertarian paleocon yeah. you know, types. They say it was World War One and goddamn uh, Wilson, who you know duped us into this war right. over submarines and that started this whole America world police thing and that the League of Nations became the prototype for the UN, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I, I often hear the, at least from the conservatives, the World War One was bad. We yeah. should have just let um, uh, Europe sort itself out line. I've, I've, the only people I ever hear talk about America shouldn't have gotten involved in World War II are usually people who are actually crypto fascists. Yeah. Well, really? That's interesting. I've definitely heard it in more mainstream sort of libertarian, just strict, like, um, I guess, uh, you know, like, uh, I, I know that your, your red flags are going to fly, but like, you know, the Lou Rockwell kind of Mises Institute kind of crew of um, uh, of libertarianism. But yeah, mm -hmm. no, I, I don't think it's that that crazy of a take, at least considering, um, uh, you know, what resulted in all that, too. But um, uh, yeah, and also just the fact that uh, like I think another thing that that it that has to do with uh, that the, another thing that's important to note is that like I I remember seeing this this was like a, a, a like a leftist take was that uh was that like in France after World War Two like a, a poll of people were were all pretty in much agreement that uh, the Soviet Union were the ones who were the most responsible for ending the Nazi occupation and um and they through years and years of propaganda uh mostly i'm gonna guess cia led um in like in 1990s but it had just completely flipped over to being completely worshiping of the united states uh response i'm sorry in, in france in france this was a poll taken in like 1949 um uh to, and they asked the people there who they thought was most responsible for liberating them from the nazis and it was the soviet union and then, I mean, it, it's just like, OK, but who actually landed in France and yeah. retook France? It was the U.S. and Britain. Right, so yeah. it's like that's that would be who the most responsible. And then what's funny to me is if if um, the U.S. hadn't gotten involved, then France would have probably just ended up being occupied by the Soviet Union. Right. No, absolutely. That's what I'm saying. No, but I'm saying like the, through years of of like you know propaganda fed to them through the fucking uh, American you know uh, America pro America world police like I said before yeah 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 uh, you know like yeah it, it, it was America France who saved you a, frogs <laughs> France does have a oh, healthy distaste for America though that they're resentful is what you're saying they're like spite voting for the Soviet Union in these polls perhaps I don't know. <laughs> Seems I, like I, a very, it seems like a very French thing to do, actually. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it does. 
I think the the French would would say anything just to not say they like America. <laughs> that sounds true. about right. Yeah. Um, well, but, when Mer- when Merkel rolls her tanks in, you guys are on your own this time. Yeah. <laughs> That's true. Uh, but anyway, so, um, yeah, one of the things you brought up that I thought was um, interesting was wh- the way that um, uh, you described the different uh, – specifically that uh, the idea that instead of there being a – or the result – hang on. So just kind of lay me out a little bit the way wh- – where you got where you were for your alternate history uh, and the two different so, paths it could take. Usually, usually the um – the just general boilerplate um, little historical footnote that you get about World War One is that there was a bunch of entangled alliances. Europe was a giant tinderbox. Right. Um, it was just inevitable that somebody was gonna was gonna uh, 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 wound somebody. Somebody was going to defend somebody, and it, it was going to start this this massive conflict. And what I would compare that to is that um, everyone, anyone. If if the U.S. and the Soviet Union had um, ever actually gone to war, if there'd been a, a um, nuclear World War III, some, right. some catastrophic conflict, whoever survived that would have seen it as inevitable. Yeah. Um, anyone, anybody, anybody looking back, assuming some civilization survived, would look right. back and say that was just inevitable. It was only a matter of time. Both of these sides had um, all these nuclear stockpiles. You know, if it wasn't the Cuban Missile Crisis that started it off, it would have been something. Yeah, else. a post hoc justification. That, Right. And so I, I just think that if you look at, um, in, in the same way that you can say, well, there was the, all of these interconnecting alliances, alliances that were inevitably yeah. going to cause to cause a, a world war, you could just as easily say, um, actually, they just got extremely unlucky. Had any one of these little uh, links in the chain not been there, right? Um, mm-hmm. World War One, as we know, it could have been avoided. So, you know, had France not agreed to a protection pact with Russia, um, if Germany had somehow talked them out of it, yeah. Um, had had Russia not declared itself protector of the Serbs, mm-hmm. um, had England not, uh, you know, vowed to defend Belgian neutrality, had Germany not issued a blank check to Austro-Hungary, had the Ottomans not decided that Germany was the people that they wanted to throw their hats uh, in with, um, so on and so forth. Maybe most notoriously, you know, Franz Ferdinand yeah. had several chances to escape that day, the day that he was assassinated. Right. Um, he, he, he chose not to. I don't know. Maybe if his wife had nagged him just a little bit more, right. it, it would have changed the what, whole... What, what, oh, don't, don't, say, don't say that angle. <laughs> <laughs> Misogynist. Um, real crime against humanity. Yeah. Um, no, it's, it is, and, and, and this has kind of recently become public knowledge, but yeah, there was, I, I believe, the same guy who ended up plugging the guy, plugging Franz Ferdinand, he had made an earlier attempt that day um, on his life, and he, yeah, he he failed, and then later he threw on a in the bomb day, at them. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and then yeah, he, he just he, so happened to see him, uh, and uh, they were yeah. stopped completely unguarded, and uh, and if that hadn't happened, like if there had been one more guy there to tackle him, it was like I think it was like yeah. a revolver shot. It's not like he he went yeah. in there with, you know, a uh, fucking you know f- full tactical <laughs> gear or something. He also he also just got very lucky and got two critical hits on um, Franz Ferdinand and his wife. Right. Um, so it was just also you know I, I don't know um, I can't remember the assassin's name now. Damn. Uh, Gavrilo Princip. Yes, Princip. Princip. I don't yeah. know if Princip actually was much of a marksman or if he just got really lucky. But yeah. you know, it, it, and anything that um, 
if anything had had gone slightly different that day in particular, uh, maybe uh, that that crisis wouldn't have turned into World War One. As I understand it, there was a, a large amount of um, brinksmanship on the behalf of the um, of the Kaiser um, mm-hmm. in terms of uh, there was like a lot of uh, personal beef between because, as you know, like all these people, all these heads of crown head crowns of Europe were all related. And um, right. and as a result, like I think the modern or, or con- now contemporary you know historians kind of agree that you know the the Ka- kaiser wilhelm kind of felt like the um like the uh, like the black sheep and uh wanted like some sort of familial respect from his cousins or whatever and that's kind mm-hmm. of what led led to the fact that it you know spilled out over an entire continent um as well so i mean if say say uh i don't know what if he got a little more pussy yeah, or if he got the brown egg at breakfast at King George's house. Yeah. <laughs> uh, or even, you know, it's like, even if, even if, like, uh, if you take any one of these little uh, chain links out, you, it's not that you get a completely peaceful Europe, it's that you can yeah. at least avoid World War One. Yeah. So you, you maybe you have like a catastrophic little... catastrophic combination right. of all these forces, yeah. So, so maybe France doesn't have an alliance with Russia. So then Germany can have a little. Germany and Austria-Hungary can go into the Balkans and uh, muck them up a little bit. Um, and then after maybe a year of fighting, they they come to some new terms with Russia or something like that. So there's still a war, but it doesn't it doesn't turn into the catastrophe that it did. right. You, you can you can ultimately look at the whole sort of World War One World War Two arc as basically. Uh, a very ugly way of reforming Europe into what it is now, which is basically a corporatist sort of continental empire uh, with the Tower of Babel thrown in. Because there's no real European identity, but there is like a European administration. And I think that was what both those wars were trying to impose that. And And it's just sort of been imposed peacefully since the war well this is a little bit of a tangent i i see people who are mad about brexit all the time online who who like to talk about a a european identity yeah there's no such thing and well they would say that's exactly what uh, a british person would say yeah <laughs> <laughs> he's a yorkshireman um, get it straight they don't even it doesn't even have a, they don't even share an alphabet the states of the european union right much less a language much less a culture much less than a demos. There's no, there's no pan-European political parties. You don't, you don't think that uh, Brussels will will mandate Esperanto soon, or <laughs> they got, may already. Have I done know some so guys who really wanted to, but um, <laughs> what's it called? Uh, what's it called? Uh, so one other thing I wanted to talk about specifically about World War One, and like, and like I know like plenty of people have talked about World War One, and and it is con- correctly viewed as like one of the most catastrophic events of. You know, t- uh, of of Ever. modern hit, yeah, of all time, possibly at least, mm-hmm. at least uh, in, in in the in the European milieu, and um, f- and one of the things that I wanted to talk about specifically bring up was um, uh, Carol Quigley, in, um I believe he cannibalized it a lot for Tragedy and Hope, but I believe it was in his earlier work, uh, like the evolution of the civilizations, and uh, one of the things he talks about is like the types of weapons used in war. 
um, as compared to what kind of um, of or social organization they have. And um, the fact of the matter was during the 1800s or up until the 18, late 1800s, most of the wars were um, were. Uh, armed citizenry kind of uh, marshaled into like uh, into state, nation states and because at that time the most efficient weapon you could you could have was a rifle and every guy could get reasonably good with using a rifle um, uh, you know, and then be, and it'd be kind of an evil, even playing field, which is why, like, with some exceptions, obviously, in European versus European conflicts between, from the birth of the rifle all the way until World War One, most of the battle, most of the wars, the casualties were not that bad. I mean, with the exception, notable exception of the civil, U.S. Civil War, but that's kind of another conversation. But, um, but also, uh, and that was also the birth of, because that's when the technology started. This is what Carol Quigley talks about: is that is that like once the 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 tech the weapons technology starts to outpace uh, the way that the the army is is um, the army is conducted, um, that's becomes a problem because that's that's why you see such high casualties for mm-hmm. uh, World War One is because they started introducing these new things like the machine gun, you know, mustard gas, right. um, all this shit, and you're still fighting it with the same old tactics of just a bunch yeah, of guys what, with rifles. What, yeah, but what, what 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 happens when you use Napoleonic tactics versus a a wall of uh, machine guns right, and yeah. um, art- it, heavy artillery? Right, exactly. French started World War One wearing blue coats, didn't they? And yeah, I always Joel remember Braid those, and all that shit. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, yeah. so this is uh, this is kind of what uh, this would be my worst case scenario for right. for avoiding World War One, and I call it the nuclear Balkan scenario. Um, if you postpone the war, so to speak, uh, if if you don't let any of the crises of the early twentieth century spiral out of control and, and turn into a Herculean a conflict, effort, by the way. Yes, I'm. I'm jumping around in my time machine. I'm saving Franz Ferdinand. I'm saving yeah. him again. <laughs> I'm saving the prime minister. I'm talking the 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 king of Belgium and all kinds of shit. All right, but um, if you if you let the old um, uh, dynasties, royal dynasties of Europe, uh, last into the let's say mid 20th century, right. maybe what ends up happening is you just give them a lot of time to stock up weapons, and there's nobody who. Uh, has any memories of any of these catastrophic conflicts um, and what they actually cost. So you would end up with all kinds of wacky things. You would end up with um, maybe people doing um, uh, carpet bombing with uh, mustard gas. You'd end up with people shooting uh, nukes out of cannons. You'd end up with all of these, these wacky um, scenarios when you have these even more more entrenched. Right. Exactly. You turn into some real Warhammer shit. All all the stuff that Saddam Hussein would have done if we hadn't invaded in, (laughs) <laughs> well, actually, you know, what's interesting is that uh, he was being facetious. Look, it, it was kind of, it was, yeah. when you look at the, this is something I always thought about the Iran Iraq war is that they were kind of fighting with world war one tactics, except they kind of had world war three technology. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. It was, it, it's the only war where you had, um, helicopter uh, versus helicopter fights. It, they were like, you know, but they were still oh, doing yes, like trench yeah. warfare and gas, but they still had like heavy machine guns and jet fighters and shit. It's really, it's such a weird war to read about. Um, from a, I guess, a, a American slash European perspective, because it's so, it's like you guys are fighting like it's like it's 1914, but you got all, all the all the tw- late 20th century toys. Yeah, right. we need to look. We need to look into that. That's a good idea. Uh, good 
Dude, babies and incubators. Babies and incubators. No, that was nineteen ninety. That was ninety one. Yeah. Yeah. The the. Uh, I was. I can remember the news coverage of that being on TV when I was a kid. Me too. In the, in Operation Shock and Awe. No. The, Which one are we Iran, talking Iraq, about? That. Iran Iraq War. Oh, oh my God! In the yeah, 80s. yeah, 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 yeah. My bad. Yeah, we should do yeah. an episode of that. Yeah. Because uh, I don't really know anything about it other than having watched the news at the time. Yeah. But I wasn't interested. So. Uh, <laughs> uh, but anyway, yeah. So. Um, um, uh, what, what? So yeah. So the idea would be being though is that with no, you know, a con, a, a, um, cultural consciousness of the heart. I mean, they called it the fucking Great War. They thought it was going to be the war to end all wars, and that does something to the mm-hmm. psyche of a people. Not to mention another thing is um, uh, just the I, the veterans and stuff coming back. Just complete. This is the first time that like people came back. This is where the word basket case came from. You know. Like uh, mm, people weren't yeah. fucked up by war like this before. And a lot of times, I mean, this was almost another thing to say is that this was really the first time like at the beginning, at the beginning of the war, it was the same as the, as prior where you were fighting for your country. It was valiant. You were going mm. to die perhaps. And then by the end, it was very clearly a, not just a quagmire, but like, you know, ideologically bankrupt by all, but the, the, you know, the most highest, the most high minded, Wilsonian mm-hmm. people. So something that uh, really stuck out to me. I was watching um, "They Shall Not Perish," the the World War One documentary. I gotta recently. check that out. It's really really good. But one one thing that really um, shocked me, I guess, was they they talk about you know what it was like on the Western Front uh, right. for the for the British soldiers when it was announced that the war was over, and nobody celebrated or clapped mm-hmm. or cheered or anything. They all just stood there like dumbfounded. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, no. Everyone was just completely quiet. Everyone oh, just yeah. sulked off of the field. I just like they just couldn't. He said that they couldn't believe that they could stand up without being shot. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we we just on Christmas we were just talking about uh, the Christmas truce, uh, 1914, mm-hmm. uh, which was really I think was very powerful to the people fighting the war and. and to you know to show that like really we're not the very different than those guys like as much as mm-hmm. you know the people that we went here for say you know and then you know the you know the fact of the matter was there was places all along France uh where they were like fuck this we're not fighting for more mm-hmm. days and the the only way that they were able to get to start fighting again was for both sides um uh, you know, non-commissioned officers to to demand that artillery go to the other side to get the fighting just pe- popping off again. So okay, yeah. I mean, it, it's like um, the the there's the popular conception of the sort of yeah you know how in the, in the after nine eleven there was all the a lot of young sort of college age kids signed up to go and join. Yeah, you know, it was like that. Um, a patriotic zeal, and there was a lot of that. You know, the sort of Pat legends of, of of the the zeal of the young young boys from England who who wanted to join up and go and fight in France at the beginning of the First World War, and I, I believe that wore off pretty quick. But there was like a, a, the this, the British Army wasn't as big as you would think it would have been for the mm. the global superpower of the age. And mm-hmm. all the, uh, my grandfather included, like the professional soldiery were all scattered around all over the world. 
And uh, my granddad had been on a posting in uh, South Africa for God knows how long, year or two or whatever. And they put it, they put him on a boat and took him straight to fucking Bordeaux. And he went and got and had to had to fight in the trenches in France for until he couldn't take it anymore, and then he got invalided out. It's like mm. the, so. I think a lot. The, the, this, I think everybody ends up as depressed as the fucking people who'd already been doing it for years, yeah, and yeah, like yeah. it's just a fucking meat grinder for the underclass. And it it's kind of I can see. Re- Resonance of it now. I've got three grown-up kids who are all in the forces now because they're not particularly, you know, the bright kids not academically inclined necessarily. They've all ended up in the forces because it's the it's the only way they can make a living really now in this right. state becomes, that we're yeah. at now. Yeah, it becomes a social safety net. Yeah. Um, yeah. Another thing. Another times a flat circle. By the way, where, where I you mentioned uh, after nine eleven, people getting all rah rah up to go join the military. I just briefly brought up that Pat Tillman guy. Um, if you recall that uh, guy Maxwell, um, he was a he would be just been drafted to be the starting quarterback for I don't remember oh, what yeah, team, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. and he said fuck this, fuck the NFL, fuck all this money. Um, uh, gonna go and, fight in Afghanistan. Gonna go fight in yep. Afghanistan and then get fragged. Um, wow. Yeah, because uh, no, he but got, that's not. But the the official story was that he died charging up the hill to fight the Taliban. Right. But, and then a, a couple of years later, the, we found out. Yeah, it turned out that he he was not happy to be over there because he realized what they were doing, yeah. um, and uh, and I, I, I some people made some decisions that if that guy came back and started running his fucking mouth about how we're we're protecting fucking poppy fields. Uh, he he better not. Um, <laughs> so uh, he's uh, KIA, I guess. But anyway, um, so yeah. So as far as the um, nuclear Balkans thing, so what, where were, where were we with that? I, I'm very interested in this stuff. I so I mean, uh, my the, the basic idea is if you postpone the conflicts of the right. early 20th century, mm-hmm. it could actually, it could come back and haunt us because then it means that you just have more deeply inbred royals who have yeah. bigger and better yeah. toys. And, we, and weird, um, so weird chins. And no, and no one in the, in the culture has any, no one in living memory can remember any really big war. Right. The last big war in Europe, I guess would be, I don't know, Napoleon era or maybe 1848 or something. And then, yeah. Uh, you know, the last big war in America would have been the civil war. So if you go, if you, if there's no wars between the like mid 19th century, uh, all the way to the mid 20th century. Boer war. Wow. Well, okay. <laughs> well, yeah, there's a long way away though. <laughs> yeah, if, the, if the Boer war is the worst war yeah. that anyone can remember. Yeah. Um, it's pretty bad. Maybe, though. maybe it ends up being worse. Maybe when you finally do get the world war one scenario, it's like, it actually ends the world. There is an interesting connection, though, between Good, the Boer yeah. War and uh, World War One. Was uh, that um, that the Boers invented trench warfare, and uh, the German uh, military, um, uh, what's it called, um, advisors? The Wehrmacht. Uh, well, they were down there because they were. At, uh, isn't Mozambique uh, German, William? Uh, it was Portuguese, but I think there's a lot. I'm not quite sure about the colonial status of a lot of these places right. over the years. I think it changed around a fair bit uh, from time to time, but there was a lot of Germans in that area of Mozambique. Yeah, yeah, and a lot of them ended up being and I think being Tanzania, the officers maybe. of the uh, of the of the First World War on the German side, and they observed the the Boers basically inventing a whole genre subgenre <laughs> of uh, of war. <laughs> yeah, well, I think I mean. 
I think uh, soldiers would dig in before. Yeah. But the, the Boers had this had ideas about how to build trenches and where to build them, which were new. And and yeah. that, that caught on, it was observed by the Germans, and they thought, oh, yeah, this is a good idea. If you <laughs> lived in the trench, yeah. Yeah. So that's the worst case scenario. What would be the best case scenario? The best best case scenario. This is my this is my extremely uh, best possible of all worlds right. uh, end of history scenario, which would be in retrospect. It seems to me that the world wars are what ideologically polarized Europe, and then eventually would ideologically polarize the world. If World War One doesn't happen, you don't get the Bolsheviks in Russia. Nope. Yeah. Um, you don't get the Bolsheviks in Russia. You do not get fascism in Italy and no. Germany. I'm I'm strongly of the opinion that fascism is a strictly reactionary thing. It yeah. could never just pop up on its own. It's also I think fascism also was appealing to people because of the loss of the old royalty and of the old sovereigns and stuff like that. Yeah. I think that obviously it's obvious to me that Mussolini and Hitler, they're channeling, they're channeling that, um, mm. that image of the, of the, uh, uh, the strong leader, emperor, emperor. Yeah. yeah. The, the, yeah. the strong leader, the strong man. Um, so without that, you just get a much less ideological world. Maybe all of these Royal families start to, um, intermarry more and more as right. time goes on. Uh, it just becomes less and less likely that they want to fight with each other. Uh, emerging, it, it, maybe it becomes more, like the world becomes more about like 19th century style positivism where it's like, we just have to keep progressing and building more railroads and more technology. Um, we just have to be, keep becoming more and more economically powerful. Um, and maybe you just end up with a world history that is by our standards, just slowed way, way down. Well, this the, my sort of take on it was that the even if what ended up being World War One did happen, if Great Britain hadn't got involved, it wouldn't have been a world war. Right. Um, and basically, the the only the downside of Germany consolidating Europe, because I mean that could Germany could have marched through Europe and and consolidated it maybe, uh, and that probably wouldn't have been all that bad. Like you say, they probably would have. There was not they, an ideological. I mean, it's like uh, the, yeah. nothing really changed after the Boer War, for instance. It's just like we've got to put these. We've got to put put our got to put the authority of the British Empire on it, uh, and then one pretty much left them alone once they'd won it. <clears throat> and you know, Germany might well have done that. Might well have sort of just been the EU, and uh, as it as it were, and. Uh, the, well, the only I, downside for Britain would be that all the European empires would have been consolidated into one rival empire, Germany, yeah. almost. Well, I, but but I, always, I always joke what, what Germany couldn't do in two world wars it did with the EU. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Just, yeah, right. It just becomes, right. So in, in maybe in this liberal monarchism, you just get a, you know, a, a monarchistic um, EU a yeah. hundred years earlier or something like that. I mean, that. you get, the, the, they call it uh, Rhineland... Rhineland capitalism is the polite way of putting it. Or, the, or, or, Which that's is funny. Really, that's really what they call it in EU. So oh, that is pretty fucking funny. It's yeah. called Rhineland capitalism, or, or in England they call it corporatism. But it's it's economic fascism, is the European system. Well, it's the world system now, really. Yeah. Uh, everybody's got it. So it's really as if we've almost ended up where it's strongly possible it would have ended up in your scenario anyway, but without the royalty and we've had two fucking awful world wars over it. 
And plus all these, a lot of these sort of Middle Eastern skirmishes, maybe they wouldn't have happened either. Right. Well, so, right. So if the Ottoman Empire stays, yeah. uh, you don't, Old you don't sick get, man uh, of Europe. You, don't, you, you don't get a lot of this stuff, right? Yeah. And also, I mean, like it, it, it bears repeating that the birth of Wahhabism, which is responsible for all of, you know, the very, very spooky uh, Muslim terrorism you hear about, um, uh, it, it was literally created by the act and an act of parliament by putting installing those guys as the head of the Saudi of what is now called Saudi Arabia. It was a very deliberate uh, decision to put one of the most radical um, Sunni factions in charge of that area because they kind of, I believe the imp- British imperialists thought they could kind of control them because they thought that they were kind of fanatical or whatever. Well, it's like the Lawrence of Arabia myth of, yeah. uh, you know, we're, we're the, that, well, I mean, Cecil Rhodes thought that the, the British were the, were the sort of the bee's knees and could basically, there was this attitude that we could civilize and manipulate any of these brown people into into acting like you know not quite like a white man but almost like a white man sort of thing and that was like i think that it's that sort of hubris and arrogance that that they thought yeah we can if if we put our chaps in charge we know how to talk to them it'll be all right yeah yeah yeah. And, and, and to your point william about about the british involvement in in World War One, like it, I mean, I know I don't need to say this to you, but we're a very firmly of the belief that Milner's kindergarten was, you know, kind of really instrumental in in, in gaining, you know, popular support and you know, like material support within British Parliament in order to get the English into the into the into the conflict. Yeah, because it really was the that sort of imperial interest of preventing a. a a rival European empire from emerging right. to to rival the British Empire, and then the opportunity as an imperialist, by the way, to be like, well, then when if when we win this, chaps, uh, we'll be yeah. able to move miss around the map and do what we want to do. So yeah, yeah. Well, see Please. that this is this is what would be funny though is that then if I went back in time to stop World War One, all I would have to do is show the British Kill government the future. Yeah. Well, okay, maybe kill Cecil Rhodes, but I'm saying you you could just show you could just show the people in in the British government that in the future Germany's just going to rule the continent anyway. <laughs> you'll yeah. fight, you'll fight two huge yeah. wars to stop to Good stop argument. German hegemony, just to end up with it anyway. In yeah, yeah, game theory, yeah, that very much is definitely not. <laughs> I think that 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 I think you, I, I'd have to talk to you about your assumptions on that. That the the, the British government had the interests of Britain at heart. Oh, I'm assuming that they're all yeah. good, honest chaps that just yeah. want to do it. <laughs> good blokes, good blokes. Yeah. <laughs> In it. Give them uh, some lager. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, shit. So yeah, that's all very cool stuff. And and yeah, it, it definitely it, it dovetails a lot of the stuff that you're saying here. I definitely yeah, it, it dovetails into some of our shit. And uh, it's very fucking cool, man. Um, but yeah. So, um, yeah, we, we can talk about some other stuff. I wanted to, I did want to talk, I did ask you as a little homework assignment to, um, uh, go back and maybe check out some of the political messaging in, uh, in Studio Ghibli, uh, specifically Hideo, uh, Hayao Miyazaki, uh, films, um, and we could talk a little about that because William is, is a noob to this. He just watched his first two Miyazaki films. 
Uh, when I was a little, when I was a little boy, my older brother showed me uh, my friend Totoro, and that 100% weed pilled me. So, <laughs> right, um, okay. I go, I go, I go way back with with my friend Totoro. But also, I, um, I don't think Miyazaki's ever made a film that I didn't at least really like. Um, some of them, some of them that he's made, I thought have been absolutely fantastic. Some of my favorite uh, animated films. I actually think his best movie though is The Wind Rises, though his last feature film, and I think his most personal. I just watched that too. It is, it's actually, it is very good. And, um, uh, yeah, and, and, and that is one of the things you see as a theme throughout all of his movies. And again, it's kind of like one of those universal themes. Like I, I've, I've known, uh, of, of the flight thing and the fascination with flight as a young kid and stuff. Yeah. And also, you know, he's got a really, um, uh, he's really interested in, in Japan and his, in its role in the world and stuff. Mm. And yeah, I agree. I just watched that, rewatched it this weekend, and um, it is an excellent film. But uh, I, I, I find the, um, so, as you say, Scott, I've only watched two of the movies. Yeah. Uh, I watched them both with my six year old daughter. And they're not short movies, and they're not, they don't really pander to the sort of cheap, yeah, kid the gimmicks. sort of vulgar, yeah, that, that uh, American and British children's entertainment do i don't know if they are supposed to be children's entertainment but she oh, was he, he, she was thoroughly entertained by him like an hour and 45 minutes of sitting still transfixed by these movies absolutely fantastic i know i know miyazaki has commented that he i don't know if he's ever actually explicitly said he wants to be the anti-disney but i know he said mm. stuff along the lines of uh, i want my movies to be a little bit more complicated than what most of the what western children's films are well the the, the villains usually are a little bit more than than one dimensional. That yeah, sort of thing. that's true. Yeah, well, it's um, what brought it up between Scott and I was uh, I'd watched with my daughter. Uh, it must be a Disney, some Disney subsidiary because it's Snow White, which is a, mm -hmm. a Disney property. But on Amazon Prime, there's a, a version of Snow White which is Chinese. It's made in it's made in China, okay. and it's got a completely different kind of social structure to it it's like when it, it and so it's it snow white is a peripheral character in it the star character is a little girl whose father is a tailor and they live in a cabin in the forest and her father's gone missing and she doesn't know where he is and she and her dog go looking for him and they stumble across seven the seven dwarves and snow white whose father is also dead whose father <laughs> and uh it's all about fathers and daughters. This one, it's like, which is not really a theme no. much in Western children's entertainment, no. is it? It's, it? We kind of, I mean, it was, it wasn't very good, but we enjoyed it. And then think, Scott put us on to Miyazaki. I think his most uh, child-friendly uh, movie, his most uh, toddler-targeted film, is Ponyo. I think that's definitely the most like. I actually, four, haven't four seen that one, so I can't really comment explicitly on it. Uh, but I'm to understand it has a lot to do with uh, uh, some folklore, a Japanese folklore. It's got it's got it's, it's some sea people, mer people mythology, but it's it's just the way it's animated. It's also it looks like a, a children's yeah, story big, book. Big eyes, yeah, I know. I've seen yeah, I've seen the very, stills from it. All the all the characters are, or most of the main characters are like really little kids, and it's it's much more. It's it's probably his most child. Um, uh, friendlier aimed aimed film. Um, it's funny because some of his movies, like um, 
uh, Princess Mononoke are, are yeah. pretty dark and pretty violent, actually. Yeah, I wouldn't get, show that one to your kid, uh, Will. <laughs> Probably wait, yeah. wait a couple of years for that one. Yeah. Yeah. I think part of, I don't know what it is that makes it so compelling to, to the child, but I mean, uh, it's undeniable. She's watched two full-length movies in two days back-to-back back and not moved a muscle while she's watching it. it and... I think part of it must be the quality quality of the illustration. It, yeah, that's one sets, of the things he's known for. Are, but are those sets actually painted, or are they, yeah. are they kind of superimposed there's, on photographs? There's actually a lot of um, there's a lot of documentary footage shot at the Studio Ghibli uh, facility. And yeah. by the way, Miyazaki is fucking based, dude. He fucking uh, he just shits on his fucking employees for not if it's like one hair is wrong, he'll like yeah. rip the shit up in their fucking face and say this is shit and exhale cigarette onto them. <laughs> I be, I believe he. You know, it's one, funny. It, yeah. It, it. Yeah. Go ahead. Uh. Uh. No, I'm sorry. Please go on. Tell, tell us more about the terrors of Miyazaki. <laughs> well, I was going to say, he, I think he was in like a long-standing feud with his son over an argument they got in because he said that uh, his son's his son is also was is now also a, uh, an animator, by the way. Um, mm. But uh, he he was put he in response to asking his dad uh, what he thought of his new movie, he said it was shit. Uh, yeah. And you should be dead. <laughs> and uh, they didn't talk for many years, I believe. <laughs> and um, also another thing was well, he's got some really great, great, great quotes. Like, for instance, um, uh, this one that went very big on 4chan, as you can imagine. But anime was a mistake. Um, was one of his uh, one of most one of most well known uh, quotes, and also he he's I haven't uh, read it in a while, but he went on this pretty poignant um, uh, rant on video about how much he despised Western animation, and um, he thought that you know they'll eat, American audiences will eat any shit up, um, and yeah. all this stuff. Um, his his other one, the other one we used, but he was uh, pretty based and probably uh, earned the ire of most of Reddit. Is he went on a rant against like hentai? Oh, did he? he I did didn't some, see that one. He, he said he said something about like I keep seeing grown men looking at um, yeah, looking he was at, talking you know, shit car- cartoon he, porn on the train, yeah. saying like this is this is a this is like an embarrassment to our entire country. Like, how can there be adult men looking at this on trains? Yeah, yeah. He said uh, um, <laughs> the, the lifestyle. The guy, the guy turned it off and said, "Hey, I'm not done yet." <laughs> Um, fucking, uh, uh, yeah. One of the, his other quotes uh, specifically to that was, uh, he said the lifestyle of a hikikomori is disgusting to me <laughs> and, uh, they should be ashamed of themselves or something. So that unfortunately a lot of them are all watching, are all watching Miyazaki films. Yeah, so. I know. I must've been but, such an ego blow. Is the, but the, I mean, the artwork is strikingly beautiful yeah, yeah the, beautiful. the real thing that appeals to me about it is the absolute sort of wholesomeness and straightforwardness of the of the stories now I'm, i expect you're going to tell me about a load of symbolism yes i, I will a I, little bit at the least i am not i'm not great at interpreting symbolism but i don't i don't feel bad about that because i think if symbolism's going to actually be effective 
you don't need to know that it's sim- symbolism. That's you know a great I mean? point. And yeah. um, that's one of the things I know that he is known for. Like, there are literally, like, fucking peer-reviewed theses written on the symbolisms of these <laughs> movies. Like, mm-hmm. uh, specifically in Totoro, um, he uses, like, a number of uh, uh, Jungian archetypes. Um, as far as like, um, well, the, really what the movie, what is about is uh, a young girl who's becoming a woman um, is forced into kind of a maternal role by the fact that her mother is absent. Um, and uh, because of that, uh, she, yeah, well, and then in the movie really is about how she's reminded of uh, her childhood, but also in the same time is it ready to move on from childhood and become an adult. And like all of that, I mean, like that's such universal themes that you can find in almost any fucking, you know, piece of literature that's targeted towards girls in the entire Western canon. Like, so mm-hmm. just the fact that he was able to do that while combining different, you know, magical elements that appeal to kids. So it's, it appeals to you on like a, at a subconscious level, as well as like you said, in the, the visual aspect. And also it is just a fucking fun story. And the, the 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 child characters are so truly drawn, yeah. That that they actually, you know, like most in in most Western. Uh, well, wait till you watch a couple more of them because he reuses yeah. the faces of many many <laughs> no, of these characters. I don't mean drawn as in with the pen. I mean oh, drawn okay. as in uh, created. Yes, the yeah. character the the characters, uh, not the images, the characters themselves right. are uh, uh, so much like sort of really great kids you know and like there's nothing there's nothing better than great kids is there and it's whereas true. in in english in english or american or whatever western yeah. culture in western culture kids aren't represented that way the way that they really are for the most part you know i mean there's always newspapers mm-hmm. fucking going on about how badly behaved kids are but i don't see it you know they, most of them are, are great <laughs> I, some uh, some good friends of mine used to make fun of me because I said that I thought that Princess Mononoke is is basically Anne Prim. It's yeah, because it, it's all it, about, it absolutely it's, is, it's, dude. It, it, but in like a very like Japanese nationalist way, yeah, it's like yeah. Japan Prim because it's all about the guns that they're using. Like because Princess Mononoke is all about you know this new technology yeah. is being introduced to the serene natural world and it's killing all of the gods yeah. and spirits of nature. The guns that they have in that movie are the replica guns from the, I can't remember if it was the Dutch or Portuguese guns that the Japanese copied and kept using for right. years after they kicked the Europeans out. But I was just like, that has to be deliberate. This is oh, all about yeah, how yeah, yeah. J- Japan was magical and awesome until all of this Western technology got right. dumped in here and now it's ruined everything. If I remember correctly, like the beginning of the film, uh, the spirit of the, fo- one of the, the boar spirit of the forest um, is like started attacking people and it's, mm-hmm. it's unsafe to travel. And then when they, they are able to purge the evil spirit from it. Um, it turns out it's a it's like a mini ball from a from a, a rifle. Yeah, and that yeah, is yeah. It's literally what what tainted it and whatnot. And also, it's got another. Um, it's got some interesting stuff about how uh, and it really is about. It is Anne Prim, but it also in the same breath, I can kind of see where his. Um, where his uh, sort of message was that like humans should take a role in, you know, protecting, you know, this, yeah. you know, whatever this stuff is. But yeah, I agree with that. I also want to run this by you. I said that um, uh, the film, the cat returns is the fel- femcell anthem. 
Um, because it's, oh, it's because she, she falls in love with a cat and he bails. Well, no, it's about it's a, the whole message of the film or what I think the message of it is. Of course, I've watched it like a thousand times. I'm a big cat guy. Um, <laughs> and listeners of the show will know that. But um, uh, what's it called? Though, really, the message of the film is like you shouldn't base all and this. It isn't just femcell. It's it's incel, too. But just the idea that you shouldn't base all your self-worth on attention from you know, potential mates or whatever. It's really, it's really about learning how to, one of them is a cat. It is in fact. So maybe it's some kind of weird, bizarro, furry, um, fucking programming. <laughs> there is anthropomorphic cats, but they're very Well, cute. cells are known for collecting cats, aren't it's they? True. It's true. Um, um do, are, are, and, and you guys are positive cells exist. Well, it's one of those things. Like what, like I've seen, <laughs> Well, no, I'm saying it's one of those things where, like, like a, a guy who is hideous will go on an incel forum, post a picture of himself, and they'll say, "You're a fucking vol cell." You know what I mean? <laughs> I this, this is when I went on incel forums. What I was shocked by is the guys who were who who seemed to be uh, the most self-flagellating on those on those forums seem to be the most normal, average-looking dudes you yeah, can imagine. It is bizarre. And, it's- and then the other guys, the guys who maybe it's like, okay, you do objectively have a really fucked up nose or something. It's like, that's not, you just need to start a band or something. Literally do anything. Yeah. yeah. Be, beat people up, lift weights. Literally do anything and, and you'll become attractive. <laughs> w- women don't have that option. Yeah. yeah. You could get arrested for, you could get convicted of uh, being a serial killer or something. And You'd women will still throw themselves the Yeah. <laughs> The ladies, the ladies love murder boys. Yeah, they yeah, all they yeah. all these murderers get. Everyone's met that one sketchy white girl who, uh, you know, wrote letters to Charles Manson. Yep. Yeah, that's true. Um, and it's very strange. It is. Um, another thing was uh, what were the other movies that I want to talk about? Oh yeah, of course. Let's let's the most obvious political, politically messaged movie in the canon is uh, Porco Rosso obviously, mm-hmm. which I kind of always thought of as a very libertarian film, actually. Um, and, uh, and you know, there's very, uh, the, you know, there's, uh, you know, the, the, the big banner line of the film is I'd rather be a pig than a fascist. And, uh, right. yeah. And he's kind of like, uh, you know, fucking John McAfee fucking rolling around getting pussy from fucking, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and he's a literal pig. <laughs> Yeah, with a mustache. He does have a mustache. See, Dude. that would always and 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 uh, Rosso always felt a little bit alternate World War One to me because, or maybe like I don't know, alternate interwar period because it's it like, is interwar. What yeah. if what what if the what if the airplane, the prop airplane age, had gone in a different direction where you could have air pirates and stuff like right. that? Right. This is yeah. It's kind of uh, like a diesel punk. That kind always of something setting. that always really appealed to me. But the, uh, this is an interesting point actually because yeah, 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 yeah. The only the two movies I've watched, the the actual time setting of the movies is ambiguous at best isn't it even in Totoro Totoro is is specific he had a specific time period in mind which is the immediate time after World War II in Japan yeah I I could get I could get that but uh, with um, the other one I watched which was what Kiki's Delivery Service that takes place in Europe actually yeah it somehow takes place in Europe and it's it's kind of it looks like Austria but it's got an ocean I think it is yeah or yeah, or it's like I, well, because she flies around not for nothing. Yeah. So I mean, yeah. But. <laughs> so that yeah, that's fine. Yeah. But uh, like this, they're all driving around in these late nineteen forties cars, 
Uh, and there's there's a dirigible in it, and there's like biplanes and stuff. And then there's a kid wearing a hoodie, wearing like a skate, yeah, 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 yeah. skater punk outfit, and and uh, another kid who's dressed up like Tintin. It's- you're you're in a you're in a dreamy magical twentieth century. Yeah. Yeah. Far away from the from, from the actual nightmare twentieth century. And besides, it, we it, all know it, it's, it, it makes it clear that it's it's like a, a different universe mm-hmm. almost, and that's why it looks so like you can accept it looking so beautiful and raining every day. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, no, uh, I mean, we all know that in the ni- late nineteen fifties, they outlawed witchcraft, so it had to have been some time before yeah. that. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Um, but yeah. Anyway, listeners, check out those movies. There. Yeah, they're there. fucking excellent. And yeah, they're. Uh, I never. You know, the interesting thing is, I'd never seen any of them. Oh no, that's not true. I'd seen. Um, I'd seen Princess Mononoke a bunch of times when I was a kid, but um, I'd never watched uh, explored any of them uh, until I met my wife fucking eight years ago, um, and uh, I, I immediately. I was. I probably was like, this is gay. I'm over anime. That's me in fucking seventh yeah. grade. But then I watch it. I'm like, fuck, like this is, I, I, I don't throw out compliments like this very often, but I gotta say, I think Miyazaki is probably the li- greatest living artist, at least in the medium of film. Fuck it. Well, maybe. Animation wise. Yeah. I, I've kind of a, I'm a Philistine. One of these, Real assholes who's kind yeah of, yeah basically well, let's not talk too much about taste because it's just gonna be William fucking saying yeah. that sucks that sucks that sucks I don't like it yeah because old man <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's exactly it. yeah but I mean even I I can appreciate this and, and you know I'm a I'm an absolute pig so oh you'd really you, like Porco Rosso then yeah you know, yeah that's, that guy is that guy is absolutely your team yeah <laughs> uh fuck. Uh, is there any other uh, ones I wanted to talk about? Yeah, what are you gonna say? Have Have either of you ever seen Angel's Egg? Angel's Egg. No. no what is that? A- Angel's Egg. Okay, if you want, like, if you're looking for like artsy fartsy, uh, um, deep cut uh, hipster anime, I would definitely recommend uh, Angel's Egg. It's not very long. I think it's only like an hour and a half. It's just a weird dream slash nightmare. Um, it's got kind of like biblical Gnostic themes. Maybe there's some alchemy stuff going on in there. Um, it's probably one of the strangest and most unique films I've seen. And definitely maybe the strangest and most unique animation animated film I've ever seen. Um, and it's, it's considered kind of a lost, lost classic. Now you can, I think you can even just find it on YouTube because yeah. no, no yeah. one, no one cares about the copyright for this movie. Interesting. Uh, yeah, cool. I'll definitely be taking that. Record. Right. You know, that's right up the fuck up my fucking alley. Anyway. So, Coming up on an hour. Um, so uh, I want to thank you, uh, Maxwell, for coming on the show. And, uh, uh-oh, did I fucking lose you guys? Who are you here? Unbelievable. This fucking shit happened again. I did, didn't it? Oh, I'm back. We're back, baby. You're back. We're <laughs> okay. back, baby. All right, it's fine. We're good now. <laughs> yeah, um, okay. I'll cut that out in the podcast version. Um, anyway, sure. so... It's been an hour, so thank you for very much, Maxwell, for coming to the show. I appreciate it. Just coming. Thank you for having me. And uh, we'd love to have you back. Obviously, we don't have to have such a regimented topic next time. Maybe we'll have you in on a Wednesday, and we'll uh, maybe we'll maybe we'll even um, we'll even expose you to uh, one of our insane. Uh, comedian friends too. That might be fun. <laughs> okay. uh, <All> right. <laughs> uh, if you if you guys want to talk about around a rock next time, uh, I'd yeah, be, yeah, that would be, be fucking great. great. I, yeah. I'd love to do the research on that. So it's, yeah. it's an under it's an underappreciated war. 
Yeah. I mean, it was just sort of, I can, the, the news reporting of it at the time in the UK was basically, we don't know what the fuck this is about, <laughs> but it's really bad. <laughs> yeah. And that was pretty much it. Uh, huh? yeah. So anyway, uh, what would you like to plug for the ladies and gentlemen listening? I'd like to plug myself, schizotopia.net. Um, you can follow me on Instagram. You can check out the podcast on my website. Um, I'm going to be more, much more active on YouTube. I'm schizotopia on YouTube as well. I'm going to be putting out some uh, video essays starting this month. So please hit that up. Yeah, yeah, your show's really interesting. You, I, I listened to your intro to Bitcoin the other day and another episode. I really enjoyed it. I'm glad to hear it. Thank you. And also, great follow on Instagram. He makes. I, it's like, how do you make them so fast? These memes. Uh, just an, uh, the force is strong in my family. Okay, fair <laughs> um, anyway, he was, he was very well vaccinated. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so uh, for the audio episodes, www.historyhomos.com. Um, you can follow us across social media um, uh, at history homos pod um check out our youtube channel for full-length video episodes um by searching history homos or follow the link in any of our uh bios and you can follow me on instagram at scott lizard abrams and i twitch at twitch.tv slash history homos um william anything you want to leave the ladies and gentlemen with i want a totoro so i can sleep on his belly (laughs) later homos